Hello and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Josephson, and today we are talking with Chris Wignall. He's executive director of the Catalyst Foundation, helping uh, create healthy leaders for healthy organizations. And he's also an author of this new book called The Reaction Dashboard, where he's taken much of what he's learned working alongside uh, nonprofits and charities and churches and organizations over 30 years in different roles and trying to condense it into one thing that he's found to be incredibly instrumental, and that's culture. So in this uh, conversation, we talk a lot about culture and specifically how it relates to nonprofits. And then also his book, which is basically uh, a really handy tool uh, that uses different um elements and uh, ways to score culture kind of on the fly uh, where you can get a sense of do you have a good culture do you have a bad culture how are you doing how's your organization doing how does it impact your network and your donors and so it kind of walks through a bit of the theory behind the book and where it came from and then we talk about some particular issues facing nonprofits. so uh, i found the book really useful the tools really useful i'm going to be putting it to use and uh this conversation i thought was very useful so i hope you find it all useful as well thank you as always for listening Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. I said, Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Brady. It's been nice to catch up to you after a long time. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so we're going to dive into culture and your new book, but uh, I have to ask, in your reading your bio, there was something about you spending time as a clown. A, is that true? And B, like you have to fill us in. Uh, what, what was that all about? Yeah, it's absolutely true. Now, the first thing you have to know is that the town I grew up in, Dundas, Ontario, is the cactus capital of Canada. <laughs> and uh, which sounds funny, but so every third weekend of August is the Cactus Festival. It's like our town, you know, little festival. And I worked for the Parks and Rec Department, and so they needed some people at this festival and a couple other events over the year to, to put on the wig and the makeup and go out. And I can juggle a little bit, and I can make like, two different kinds of, uh, of balloon animals. So I got the gig. So a few friends and I would march up and down the streets and when you're dressed as a clown, you can, like, make fun of police officers and do all sorts of things that you can't get away with most of the time. So, yeah, it was it was a fun gig every, uh, I don't know, I did it half a dozen times. Okay, so when I read that, I pictured you spending, like, years, you know, like, as a clown, uh, as opposed to kind of pitching it at a festival, so... No, I, I uh, was not quite that committed to it. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's that's pretty funny. So, you know, we've we've known each other for a while, and mostly on social, we're saying it's been years since we've actually seen each other. Um, but then, kind of reconnected because you wrote this book, and what was really interesting yeah. is uh, you're touching on a subject that the more time I spend in the nonprofit space, the more I'm convinced that you know we have a cultural problem more than anything else, which is you know really what you're talking about. So that's what I want to want to talk about today. So, you know, at the end of your book. Um, and I'll be honest, I didn't read the whole thing. I just fast forwarded to the end because uh, I just got it yesterday. Uh, you have this great quote saying, the difference between doing leadership well and doing it poorly isn't strategy or execution, but it's culture. And I think that's so true. How do you define culture? And then kind of what led you to that conclusion that, you know, it's really about culture more than strategy and execution? Yeah, 
I think the best definition of culture I've come across, it's not mine, but it, and I don't remember where I heard it is, culture is the way we do things around here. Hmm. And I would describe it as culture isn't so much what we see in here. It's kind of, it's kind of the smell of the place. It's hmm. something you don't notice that you're noticing a lot of the time. And I think that's why it's the hardest thing. Hmm. We, we understand well you know, the history of leadership development. We put years and years of good research and learning and, and great promotion into the idea of strategy. We worked really hard at it through the 80s and the 90s. And then we realized that having a great idea but not knowing what to do with it wasn't working. So we started really pouring into execution and we all memorized the seven habits of highly effective people. And we, we did all this stuff to try to be more productive. And what we've understood experientially and the research is starting more and more to, to affirm this is that if we don't like what we do, if we don't mm-hmm. like the people we do it with, uh, then we don't get the best out of ourselves or anybody else. And that's the culture thing. It's, it's not as easy sometimes to identify. It's hard to do the academic stuff with it because it's not numeric. Mm-hmm. But we all know the experience of being in a place that felt good and being in a place that didn't feel good. Yeah. I, I like that simple definition. And that's one of the great things about your book is that it's so, you know, simple and straightforward. A lot of, you know, leadership books are really, you know, heady and complicated. Yours is very easy to read, which is great. But even just the, you know, how we do things around here. Um, and, and maybe uh, I was at an organization where we had unreal culture, unreal culture. And then we basically like hired a consultant to kind of improve and codify our culture. And then it was way worse after that point. Like, <laughs> and, you know, it's because it went from something that was so organic that we all just naturally knew and like connected over. And it just, it was what we did. And then it became something that A, was trying to be something that it's not. Uh, and it was trying to like force it. So that's why I like that definition is it has to be so, you know, organic. And is that one of the challenges of which once you kind of like start talking about culture, it's like, are you losing culture? You know, it's kind of, you know, this double edged sword kind of. I think so. I think one of the challenges with the culture is that it's so human. Mm. And that's actually not, it doesn't tend to be how we elevate leaders. We tend to to choose and and elevate leaders because they're really good at problem problem solving. Mm. They can solve more problems more quickly or more complex problems. And that's strategy and execution stuff. Mm -hmm. But you and I have both worked for leaders who uh, they, they didn't do the people stuff very well. Mm-hmm. And that, that filters out. It's really hard to have a healthy culture in an organization if you don't have healthy leadership. Uh, but we've not quite figured out how to identify, develop, and promote culture leaders the same way we have strategic and execution leaders. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that we found. So uh, two years ago, we did a study on... Um, nonprofit leaders, so leaders, managers, and practitioners, and okay. the kind of differences between them. And a lot of people would, would have the kind of, um, you know, problem-solving skills, but not the leadership skills as they went up because, you know, they're great at what they do, so let's keep promoting them. Or you see a lot of, like, awesome major gifts people become directors of fundraising departments, and they're not very good at that role, you know? And so there is, like, a, a hiring problem, right? Yeah. Yeah, and there's also a... a it's hard for us to do culture because 
the tools, most of the tools, most of the consultants that do culture, it's expensive, it's elaborate, it's mm. deep. And that's a good thing to do once in a while, just to, to really take an analysis of where you're at. Mm -hmm. The problem is on the fly, that that binder, that hard drive is never going to get opened again. Right. And what we need as leaders, in particular, those of us who the culture stuff doesn't come intuitively, mm -hmm. we need to figure out how can we keep a thumb on culture? How can we be aware of what's going on there without... Uh, it being overwhelming to us and to right. our teams. Yeah. And yeah. is that really kind of the, the, you know, origin story of sorts for the, the dashboard and, and why you wrote this book is kind of, you know, we need something that's more useful on the fly in the, in the real world. Yeah, precisely. I, the, the story goes that, um, I've been a leadership consultant for full time for more than a decade. And before that it was my hobby and my interest. I, I'm a leadership guy. Mm -hmm. um, and so several years ago, I said, I'm going to write down and, and put everything that I know and believe about leadership into one, you know, elaborate, comprehensive model. Mm -hmm. And I started working on it and I ended up with something you can scratch on the back of a napkin. <laughs> and I realized that's, that's actually what I really wanted to do. Yeah. That in order to help leaders, it needs to be something they can just grab a hold of quick, something they can memorize and refer to without having to pull out a dusty volume off the shelf. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to jump back to kind of nonprofits specifically and some of the nuances that you've seen. But let's talk about the the dashboard and, and the book, which is kind of, you know, one and the same. Uh, can you yeah. just give us a quick overview of kind of React uh, and the dashboard and kind of, you know, we kind of know where it came from. But just kind of for people who haven't read your book, they should just give us a quick yeah. overview so that next part of this conversation makes sense. Yeah, really simply. And if you pay close attention to this, you don't need to buy the book because it's that simple <laughs> a tool. Um, the way I look at it, culture has five kind of elements. Uh, reason, energy, alignment, clarity, and trust. So, And if you take the first letter line, it spells the word react. And what we do with the reaction dashboard, or when I'm consulting on this, in the book, is we write the word react down the left side of a page. We write I-O-N-S across the top of the page, and that gives us a grid. And we fill that in with a really simple scoring system that allows us to do a on-the-spot, in-the-moment, where we are right now analysis of culture. It's totally subjective, but I think that works because culture is very subjective. So reason is, why do we do this? Do we understand what this is all about? And the question we ask is, do you know the reason for your organization and do you care about it? And so sometimes you've been in a place where you're not quite sure what all this work is about. Other times you're in a place where you know what it's all about and you're realizing maybe over time, I don't think that's what I'm about. And in either case, uh, you need to figure out, you know, what's going on with the reason. And so there's in the book, it goes into more detail about some really simple mnemonic things you can do to keep track of reason to improve our understanding of it, to share it more broadly. So reasons first. Second is energy. And we've gotten so much better in leadership stuff and in life in general, talking not about managing our time, which is an execution kind of thing, but managing our energy, which is actually more of a culture kind of thing. So do we have energy? And are we choosing to give that energy into the organization that we work in? Um, and so it, it talks about this thing that I call uh, 
uh, maximum sustainable discretionary effort, which sounds really impressive, but all it means is there's a certain amount of work you have to put in or someone's going to notice and you're going to get fired. That's, that's, you know, the minimum standard. But none of us are happy for long doing that in our lives. And, and we don't like to be around people who are just, you know, punching the clock and getting home. There's seasons where that's all we have to offer. But what we really want is people to give more than they have to. We want to give them as much of it as they can. But the danger that I see in the nonprofit world particularly is people give beyond what they can sustain. And there are seasons like that. There's you've got a crazy week, you've got three events, you got a whole bunch of stuff going on. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna overdo it that week. But hopefully the week before or the week after is not like that. So what can we sustain over time? That's that's an energy question. Uh, alignment is is about whether the energy is actually being applied to the reason. Um, when I was when I was first working on the book, the book took me way too long to write for a very short book. But my in-laws took my wife and three kids and I to Disney World. And so I'm thinking about reaction and, and energy and culture and um, and I'm walking around Disney World. And so when I present this stuff, I often make references to some of the, the really familiar Disney. And when I talk about alignment, you know at the end of Finding Nemo, they, uh, they get you know the fish back together and then... Um, Spoiler alert. We get caught in the net, right? Spoiler <laughs> alert, yeah. Apologies. Um, <laughs> So they get caught by a trawler and, and they're getting hauled up and Nemo was not caught in that, but, it, but he swims into the net and all the fish are going crazy because they're getting, you know, captured. And Nemo says, tell all the fish to swim down. Everybody swim down. And they start, you know, doing that. And, and the top fish and Quinn Nemo break the surface of the water and now they're suffocating, which is just the whole brain thing for me. I can't break it my mind around it. But then the rest of us all end up swimming directly down. And in this beautiful Disney moment, the music swells to a crescendo and the winch on the trawler breaks and the fish get free. Get free. It's the same idea in our work. Are we actually, is all the effort we're putting in actually being applied to what we're trying to accomplish? And when it's not, it can be that, that the systems aren't good. It can be that we aren't actually committed to what we're supposed to be doing or we're distracted by all kinds of things. Uh, there's lots of reasons that we don't have perfect alignment and, and very few of us ever do for more than a couple of seconds at a time. But it's something to strive for. Um, the C stands for clarity. And there's a guy named Brian Reynolds who wrote uh, a really good book called What Do You Expect? It's, it's not nearly as well known as it should be. But the genesis of his book, the heartbeat of it is, do we, do we have mutually agreed upon expectations? So that's what clarity is about. Do I know what to expect of you and do you know what to expect of me? Do I know how information, responsibility, and resource flows to me and from me and how that serves the bigger picture? So it's job description, but it's so much more than that because we both know that uh, the most important line on any job description is buried at the bottom and it usually says other duties as assigned. And uh, that's just true. And in the nonprofit space, it's sometimes doubly true. But do we understand, do we mutually agree on what we expect of one another? And if we do, then we can have real clarity. And then the C stands for trust. Um, trust is, is the basic currency of humanity. It's the key to leadership. And in a nonprofit world, sometimes it's even more important because in most organizations, we're not able to pay people what the market would value their work at. So we rely on you know them trusting us and them being committed to the reason to 
sort of get over that hump. Uh, the Covey organization did a book called The Speed of Trust, and it's a great concept. Uh, I don't know that many people have actually finished the whole book because it's a little bit thick, but it has this great idea that trust functions in an organization the way lubricant functions in an engine. It allows things to move freely and smoothly and quickly. And with a lack of trust, things grind down. And we end up double-checking things. It's a combination of character and competence. So are you going to do your best? And is your best actually good enough? So that, that's what trust looks like. So we understand those five elements, and then we score them. The IONS across the top stands for Individual Organization Network, and then a special column. So you score all those things on a 10-point scale, and uh, you know the individual is you, the organization. You might just use your team in a large organization or the organization as a whole. The network, this is a part that I think it's a little bit unusual and helpful because we have to understand our culture beyond the walls of our organization into how it interacts with all of our stakeholders, our donors, our clientele, our partner organizations, the agencies we're associated with, that huge, messy glob of everybody. And do they know our reason? Are they giving us some energy? Some of that energy in that case is financial. Yeah. Well, the I love the the kind of react categories and even as you were, you know, talking I'm just thinking about me and our team and like, oh yeah, like this, you know, it's just a useful framework. And the thing I've noticed at least with frameworks or teaching is just it doesn't need to be the, you know, most elaborate uh or even, you know, best or anything like that. Just actually taking time to pause and reflect on your own culture is like half the battle, right? Uh, yeah. You guys have had people on and done really good, like deep, almost academic analysis of culture. And that's, mm. that's a huge gift to us. Uh, but sometimes people just aren't interested enough or don't have the time or capacity to dig in. Uh, so for those who have done that and just need a, a primer or a refresher, or for those who aren't wired that way, this is a really simple tool. If you've done it once, you know it. And you can do it in 10 minutes by yourself or in 45 minutes with your team as often as you think you need to and sort of check in on how's culture doing for us. Yeah, and I like that about the the tool and the suggestion is you say, like, don't do it like looking back and how were we last quarter. It's basically like right, you know, right now and do it more frequently because culture changes and evolves and there are seasons of work and life and organizational cycles. And so even saying like last year we had great culture you know, this year, how are we? Like, that's not even, you know, the best way to kind of keep tabs on it, right? Absolutely. And, and what happens uh, when you get into the book, we talk about problem solving and, and doing a tool like this. We, I wouldn't, you know, monthly or quarterly is probably good to do it with your executive team. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, what you do is you catch the culture problems before they get worse. Right. So like when the light comes on the dashboard of your car, you can ignore it. With most cars that, that's giving you a warning, there's trouble ahead. Mm-hmm. And you should do something about it if you don't want to end up stranded by the side of the road. Right. Often with culture, we ignore it until it's too difficult to fix easily. Mm. And it becomes expensive and timely and demanding. Yeah. Uh, this helps us to catch stuff quickly. Right. 
Um, you reminded me, my car actually has a check engine light on that I've been <laughs> ignoring for months. <laughs> so I just take that in. Um, one of the other neat things that, that you talk a lot about that I don't think a lot of culture, um, you know, academic literature talks about is celebration. Can you talk a little bit yeah. more about celebration and why that was so important to you in, in this book? You know, it actually wasn't part of the tool initially. Hmm. Um, the tool started without that. And then as I was playing with it and trying it out with people and organizations, I realized that this idea that um, celebration is its the most leverageable tool and advantage that most organizations aren't paying attention to. And when hmm. we do it, when we do it well, we do it intentionally and thoughtfully. It has this incredible power to bring out the best in us and, and each other. So when I present this, sometimes I have people push back and start talking about celebration. I, I remember one guy, I was working with a, an international organization, this guy got sort of annoyed with me for talking about celebration. So that's just, you know, that's soft, that's silly stuff, that's not <laughs> right. important. So, and I said, well, I think, I think we're not talking about the same thing. You're thinking about, like, having cupcakes because it's somebody's birthday. Right. And I think that's great, but it's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about intentionally recognizing our wins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about paying attention for the the signs of maybe not completion, but success along the way. Yeah. And I think for a lot of leaders, they actually have the lowest need and the lowest capacity for celebration of anyone in their organization. Yeah. It's a, a Sports Illustrated article from years ago uh, about Urban Meyer, a college football coach. Uh-huh. And when he was coaching, I think it was at, at maybe in Miami or Florida. I Florida. think it was Florida Gators coach. Yeah. So he instituted victory feasts, and they won. Well, he was a, a national champion. They won all the time. So whether it was a home game or a road game afterwards, when they got off the plane or walked the same, there'd be this massive banquet and all the the big shots from the community and the school and the donors and everybody would be there. And the story in this profile was that he was not going to these things because to be at that level as a college football coach, you're so obsessive mm-hmm. that you're breaking down film almost even during the game you're playing. So he's in his office after a game, breaking down film, and he's hungry. He goes, I need to get something to eat. He goes, oh yeah, I'm throwing a huge banquet downstairs. I should check that out. So he walks in and he looks around and he grabs an assistant coach. He goes, where's the rest of the coaches? Where's all the players? This is a... And the coach looks at him and says, hey coach, if you're not going to celebrate, we're not going to celebrate. Hmm. And I think that's true for all of us. Yeah. The problem is that because leaders tend to get elevated because they are problem-solving people, they are not in the habit of, or maybe not even lawyer, to pause and say, hey, that works, let's, let's celebrate that for a second. But most of the people lower on the org chart, hmm. the people on the front lines, they need somebody to say, yeah. hey, that was really good. Yeah. Sometimes this actually works, all this stuff we're doing. Right. And as leaders, we're jumping ahead two or three problems down the road, and everyone else is going, yeah. Yeah. No, that that's a really good point. And I mean there's so many applications, especially to our space, right? Just even thinking of 
um, you know, we generally work in more like the annual fund and thousand dollars and below type donors and you can have unreal success. And for a large organization, you're not really moving the, t- the bottom line revenue budget that much. Right. And so, yeah. you know, someone closes a million dollar gift and hey, let's have a party. Whereas if you just increase like your online donation conversion rate 30 percent, no one ever really knows, you know. And so if right. you only celebrate the, the big or the things that are known, but you don't you know, you don't, you're not responsible, then yeah, you can go months, you know, years perhaps without feeling like your work and the success that you're having isn't being recognized. And that's, I think what burns people out more than, you know, almost anything is the lack of, uh, reward, not just financial, but like recognition, I'm doing a good job and, you know, that kind of thing. And that, that's why I was really struck by the celebration is like, oh, that's so important. And it's got to be more important to leaders even than they think. They may think, oh, I don't need you know, recognition or it's donors who say, I don't need to be thanked. It's like, yeah, they do. And like, yeah, of course you want to be recognized no matter who you are. I think all of us give our best effort in the places where we feel appreciated. Mm. And so if, if you're one of the gym and you feel like you're, you're getting healthier, then you keep going to the gym because you're right. seeing progress. It's recognized in, in your personal relationships. The people who say to you, Hey, I care about you. I love you. Like, those people tend to get more of our time and attention and energy. Right. Well, I think the same is true in our work. And especially in the nonprofit place where people are making a choice quite often to work in this sector mm. when they could do something else that would have some advantages. If we can be the place in their life where they are most celebrated, mm. that brings that brings staff loyalty. If, if you're the charity that celebrates best what your donors are doing, you're probably going to have a lot less donor turnover, donor fatigue, and you may be able to bump them up a month or two on their giving because they're like, hey, this organization is actually having success, and they're in appropriate ways, but they're making me a part of that success, and that feels good. Yeah. It was interesting when I was, you know, going over the dashboard and reading through the elements, just the the parallels to more of our world, like communicating to donors and just thinking like, you know, do you give them a reason to give? (laughs) Right. do, Do they have some natural kind of energy or motivation towards your, you know, your, your cause, uh, are they aligned with the work that you're doing? Are, do they clearly understand what it is that you're doing? Do they trust what you do? Like these, some of those are exact words that we use when it comes to like value proposition. And it's, you know, one level you're like, oh, that's so insightful. The other level, like th- these are all humans. Like these are all things that we need um, to do things that we care about, whether it's work or give away our money. You know, there's certain things that we need to have in our lives. And so it's uh, just the parallels between humans. And you talked about earlier, like culture is messy because humans are messy basically and it's the same thing like working with donors is tough because they're humans and it's not as clear as we have something that you want and it costs fifty dollars to buy like it's much more complex than that yeah and and there's nothing in this book that's new information it's stuff that you really go oh yeah that's true i know that right that too it's not just you know you've got the different perspectives of like how am i doing how's our team doing how's the wider network like donors you know doing and what's special what do you what do you do with that special column when i started using the tool i wasn't there and then people would say to me well 
within our organization, I have my department. Mm. And that's what I think about. Do I have to think about the whole organization? Or someone say, well, I deal with major donors and we've got an issue there. Gotcha. So do I have to think about the whole network? And I thought, this is just making it harder for people to engage in. So let's make it easier. Right. So we add a column that says, whatever's on your mind, that special, that, yeah. that particular area that is either because it's your responsibility or because it's a, a bright spot or a red flag right now. Yeah. Gotcha. So it's kind of like uh, your your like um, sock drawer, <laughs> like anything else that doesn't yeah. really fit. You just kind of toss it over here. Um, yeah. we, we've t- we've talked a little bit about the the uniqueness uh, of nonprofits in a few different ways, but um, is there anything in like your work and leadership and doing this book that you see as significant challenges or maybe benefits uh, to nonprofits or things that they need to make sure they do or avoid? Yeah, I think. I think in the nonprofit space, we generally are our teams and our donors think the reason is important. They're there because of the reason. Mm. People don't, don't take the job. They don't start giving, unless in most cases they kind of buy into what you're trying to accomplish. Right. But we can take advantage of that in an unhealthy way and just yep. expect that we can do less in culture. We can do less celebrating because That's really good. I mean, you know, that that's a big part of kind of my story to a degree where, you know, I've living out my my reason and my passion. But, you know, using this dashboard, a lot of the other things maybe in terms of my role and where is that life wise, we're, we're low scores. So like reason crazy high, but other things were low. And then it's like, I can't do this. I feel like I'm, you know, burnt out, even though reason and maybe alignment, you know, we're, we're great. Um, and and you're right. I think nonprofits rely too much on reason uh, alone, (laughs) you know, to, to build their culture. And that's, that's tough. Yeah. I, uh, uh, one of the parts of my story is I work in churches for quite a while Mm -hmm. and I do some consulting with churches as well. I remember a friend had applied for a job at a church as a youth worker Mm -hmm. and they brought him in and they did like, you know, the, the initial interview and then they brought him in for a weekend to have them speak to the youth and the parents and build some friendship and start, you know, do all this stuff. And they, everyone's, you know, they, the, the youth and the families love this person. And the person's like, wow, I can really see myself being here. And, you know, we'd love to be a part of this. And then they got to sort of the final stage and the leaders from the organization and the church said, okay, here's the salary package. And it was so far below what you can mm. possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. And the, the person actually was their spouse called me and said, like, what do we do? Mm. And I said, I walk away. Yeah. Because they're trying to take advantage of your commitment to the reason. And they're not going to treat you right on the way in. They're probably not going to treat you right the rest of the way. Yeah. And I understand that. And in the nonprofit world, we don't have often the money to do 
Right. Well, and, and even if not, not if you want to like take advantage of people, but even if you want to leverage the fact that we have high reason, I still think organizations can do a lot better. Right. Like I know uh, one of the organizations that I love and support out here, uh, they do international development work in Rwanda and they take everyone to the field within their first six months. Right. It's like we need to connect you personally to the reason that you're doing this and at their expense and it's not easy, you know, and they could leave and you just gave them a trip to Rwanda, whatever. But it's so important to them, right, that people are connected to the reason because they know it'll, you know, pay off. So even those things of just like, you know, making sure that people in back office actually see the front impact. And, you know, I think there's even more that we can do to make sure that the reason's connected because I think nonprofits can take it for granted or, or, uh, you know, abuse it, but they can also just assume, oh yeah, everyone gets the reason. And, you know, you, you read our website, right? (laughs) You know, it's like, well, that's, that's not enough either. Like just because we have it, we need to use it too. Right. Yeah. All of this stuff leaks over time without Mm. attention. Yeah. So we need to give it some attention. Oh. Um, well, thanks so much for kind of uh, making sure none of us need to buy your book anymore. Uh, you really sold it well. <laughs> yeah, I guess so I don't have a manager or an agent. <laughs> um, no, I, I think it's great. Uh, any final tips uh, that, that just for people that are interested in kind of learning more about culture, um, you know, some kind of yeah insights or tips for them? No, first buy the book. Buy several copies of the yeah. book. <laughs> we'll be sure to send that out, yeah. I don't think it's that hard. Mm. I think it's just about having a little bit of discipline to pay attention. Mm. And I think the biggest thing is to start looking for where you can celebrate a win. Because when you celebrate a win, you reinforce everything that's good in your organization. You reinforce the reason. You reinforce the kind of valuable behaviors you Mm. want. No, that's that's a good insight. Um, well, thanks for for spending so much of your time. Uh, where can people find out more about you and get this lovely book? Yeah, the easiest thing to do is just go to reaction-board.com, and that will actually link you through to the organization I lead, which is the Catalyst Foundation here in Canada. And you can go from there and, and get a copy of the book. It's also on Amazon and, and all the regular sellers. Uh, but uh, and then get in touch with me directly. I'm Awesome. Thanks. Well, I know uh, I'm planning to do that now with our team, so I'll let you know how it goes. And uh, thanks again for, for taking the time to put all the, you know your, your work and thinking into such a handy tool uh, for a space and a sector that is a desperate need of you know cultural tools. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Hi again, Brady here. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found that conversation with Chris useful. Uh, after we recorded, Chris was gracious to offer a few copies of his book to you, listener. So if you are uh, still listening, thank you, uh, and are interested in getting your hands on a copy of Chris's book, uh, we'd love to send you one, or he'd love to send you one. So please get in touch. You can do that by emailing Brady, B-R-A-D-Y, at nextafter.com, or letting us know what podcast at nextafter.com. Send an email either way and uh, we'll get your address and make sure you get a copy of Chris's book. Thanks again for listening.
Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. It, Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kuchuriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.